Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Sean Baker. Dr. Sean Baker is an orthopedic surgeon based in California who is a multi-sport world record holding athlete who has currently just entered the Masters 50 plus world and he's planning to break even more world records in that field. Thanks so much for coming on to the episode today, Sean. Gary, thank you. It's a pleasure. So the reason I got you on is because your Twitter feed is fascinating <laughs> I, I recommend anyone i'm going to link to everything in the show notes but uh people should definitely follow you because i've learned a ton just from watch watching what you share on on twitter and the what the concept i really want to hone in today is the carnivorous diet or what i see some people call the zero carb diet so i think if we could start off with just explaining um why are you so passionate about eating a lot of meat in your diet well, it's not, it's not that I'm passionate about eating meat. I'm just passionate about doing what works well for me and, 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 and going through the process and discovering what that actually is. It just so turns out that that's a diet that works really well for me. And, and, there's, and, and when you look around, there are a lot of other people that, that have found this out as well. And so I think most people don't even make that journey. And so most people just kind of, you know, kind of flail around and, and do a little change here and there and, and they, they don't really uh, make a real effort to, to sort of objectively critique what's going on. And so one of the nice things about, you know, what I'm doing is I've, I've really eliminated a lot of dietary confounders and kind of boiled it down to its very basic, uh, you know, as basic as it can be and, and, and can see what happens. And, you know, it's a strategy I think people can use to uh, really, um, make informed decisions based on that. It's really hard to, nutrition is extremely, extremely difficult. I mean, there's so many different things that go into that. And I, you know, personally, you know, after having done this for many, many years now uh, with different experimentations, I've come to the, sort of the, the realization that it, that it should be very simple, just like it is with pretty much every other species on the planet. Uh, and, and just because we're smarter than the other ones doesn't mean we have to be uh, dumber about our diets, which is, I think, is what we do. Um, so I'd be interested then in, um, so you, you said you've done lots of nutrition experiments on yourself, for, which is exactly what biohackers are, you know, so self-experimentation and equals one stuff. And what kind of what kind of eating journey have you been on to get to this point where you're at? So were you low carb? Were you ketogenic? Were you, what kind of things have you played with? Right. So I would say about six years ago, you know, when I, when my health was not in a good, relatively poor place, I, I started to look at diet. You know, I'd been an athlete my whole life and I continued training very hard, but despite the hard training, I was seeing some negative things going on in my, my, my health. Uh, some blood pressure was slightly elevated. I was difficulty sleeping. I was probably developing sleep apnea. I had more body fat on me than I wanted. Um, you know, I had some joint issues, all those things that kind of that kind of creep up on us as we age. And at that point, I was in my sort of mid-40s. And so I, I started playing on diet. And the first thing I did was what, what I would advise patients to do is was just basically do reduce calories and increase my exercise 
activity. And I, and I did that and I actually did that fairly successfully. Um, but it was hard. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was sustainable for me. I mean, I was, I mean, I talked to Paul Burgess about this on a different show about six months ago. And I was literally exercising three times a day and my cal- my caloric intake was probably, uh, you know, 50% to 40% while I was eating routinely. So I had a tremendous caloric deficit and, and mm-hmm. a huge output in exercise and, and I was able to lose weight, but I, it just wasn't sustainable. So then, you know, as I kind of further sort of studying nutrition, I, I kind of sort of uh, attached myself to the sort of paleo or primal type of diet. And that was certainly a step up as far as sustainability for me or, or uh, something that I could actually do. Uh, and then I kind of looked into the science more and then I got sort of into low carb and I did that for a while and I started doing ketogenic diets and then this whole time I was competing as an athlete and so I was really kind of monitoring my progress and at that point I was doing what I'm still doing now is this concept two rowing stuff and the nice thing about the concept two rower I'm not sure if you're familiar with that but it's a very very objective method for uh, feedback for looking at your own physiology. I mean, it's just wattage. There's no, there's not much technique to it. I mean, you have some basic, basic technique, but once you have that down, it's just where am I at physiologically? And it's such a good tool that you can say, I'm better, I'm worse. Either I can produce a wattage or I can't. And so as I got into the ketogenic diet, I started playing with different variations, whether it was, uh, you know, a cyclic ketogenic diet, uh, you know, a targeted ketogenic diet. I would carb load on the weekends. I would, I would do some, you know, targeted carbohydrates before workouts, uh, a little bit after sometimes. I would do uh, you know, carb backloading. You know, there's a guy named uh, uh, D.H. Kiefer, I think, who's got some mm-hmm. books on carb backloading. So I experimented with all those things, and I would, you know, I would, I would try to really objectively critique my performance. And I really, I couldn't objectively say I saw big improvement with those strategies. And so then I kind of started just staying ketogenic most of the time or almost all the time and, and my performance continued to improve and a lot of things in my health improved as well. Then I, you know, started to, you know, look, you know, look at the, some of the steak and egg diets that were kind of popular in the 1950s and 60s with some of the early bodybuilders. And as I did that more and more often, I just got to where I found that when I was doing that, I felt the best. And so then I kind of just, you know, increased those periods of time and then started doing some of the research on the zero car population, look, studying some of those folks. And I was seeing just, you know, people saying that their health was improving significantly. And, and some of the issues that I was still having were getting better and better. And so about eight months ago, I kind of transitioned fully into this full-time carnivory. And, you know, I just continue to see improvements in my health and performance, you know, and so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Okay. Yeah. So you, it sounds like, um, you've, you've done a lot of what are very popular, uh, diet strategies at the moment and what are, a lot of people are talking about, but you were using your, um, your, uh, physical power to, as a, as a, like a, a parameter to gauge which one was working best for you other than just physical weight and, and feeling. So you could actually see, yeah, wow, I'm kicking butt on the, the wattage on the concept too, on this one, this is some, my body's got loads of energy and it's performing much better. Yeah. I would say that was the easiest way for me to get really objective feedback about what my physical capacity was. Now there were other things that I was looking at as well. I mean, there, there are, you know, as you get older, there's some, there's some skin related change, skin related changes that occur uh, with aging. And I was seeing some of those things 
that were starting to reverse on me. So I was kind of just keeping an eye on certain little areas of skin and seeing those things going away. I, you know, I had some aches and pains that had plagued me for decades and those things started to go away. And so, you know, That's those okay. things are a little bit subjective, but you, but you still, you notice those things. And if you're, if you're in tune with what's going on, you can kind of, you know, say objectively kind of be, be somewhat objective about it. But I mean, like I said, the concept too, it's, it, it's really, really objective because it's just pure wattage and it's either you can produce it or you can't. And, yeah. and so right now I'm doing pretty well and I'm pretty happy with where well, it's going. Well, again, having followed, you know, I'm, I follow you on Twitter and uh, I used to do uh, competitive rowing at school. So I That's fully cool. understand the, the concept too. I spent a lot of time right. before, on a, on an ergo to to train for for rowing and uh when i looked at your split times it's incredible what you're pulling for 500 meter splits and uh just the times that you're doing so anyone who doesn't understand that it's just know that sean is a beast on the concept too <laughs> i think a lot of people in their 20s would would love to achieve what you can even do it you, uh, you know in the 50s now that you are at yeah it's it's you know for, for people that haven't done it it's hard to explain but i think anybody that's actually you know certainly crew guys you know, at least in the modern era, certainly know a lot about the concept too, and they know how unforgiving and, and uncaring it is. It doesn't care how much you, you know, how much you hurt. Just it's always the same. <laughs> That's so true. Okay, so um, I guess what I what I and maybe listeners would like to know now. So we, we're talking more about a carnivorous diet, and I think we we need to touch on that that is that's different to a zero carb diet is it you know so the, the word what a lot of people would think is oh sean's on a zero carb diet but you you would say you're not on a zero carb diet well i think i think as most people you know it's, it's basically a misnomer most people that are on a zero carb diet are on a carnivorous diet and so when you tell someone you're on a zero carb diet they assume you're eating no carbohydrates and that's not actually true because if you eat things like eggs and certain meats and cheeses, you're going to get a little bit of carbohydrate in there. Uh, if you eat liver, you're going to have, you know, there's a little bit of glycogen in there. So you're going to get some carbohydrate. What that really means is you avoid any plant products. And so you don't eat vegetables, you don't eat fruits, you don't eat wheats, grains, nuts, seeds, basically anything that's derived from a plant. Now, some people will have a little bit of spices, you know, they might, you know, put some pepper on, on their meat, use salt and pepper and things like that. And occasionally, uh, you know, that's the extent of that. But basically it's, it's, it's sort of, basically a carnivorous diet and yes zero carb is is unfortunate it's an unfortunate term because it causes mm -hmm. a lot of confusion because if, you know people say well you've eaten an egg so that's a that's a half a gram of carbohydrate so you're not really zero carb and so it would be better to to, to term it as just a carnivorous a pure carnivorous diet i think would be uh, more accurate and is that the way that you eat then so you don't you don't eat vegetables and fruits you eat you just eat Meat uh, is it? Is it? Is that correct? Meat and eggs. Largely, that's largely correct. And then people ask you to find meat, and so I mean, basically, it's any any kind of animal, you know, whether it's beef, lamb, chicken, turkey, fish, even you know, if you want to eat shrimp or mollusks, you know, mussels, you know, oysters, things like that. Uh, that's how I think most people define meat within this particular mm -hmm. community. And then there's you know, uh, you know, eggs are are certainly animally derived. Uh, some people will sort of issue eggs. Some people will uh, do the same thing with dairy. Um, dairy obviously comes from, from an animal source as well. And so there's people that have trouble with dairy. There's people that have trouble with eggs. 
uh, for, for whatever reason. And, and, and that's basically it. You know, I, I think, you know, and as far as drinking, you know, I drink, I drink primarily water. I mean, that's all I drink basically. I've never was in the habit of drinking. I think you just saw, I did, you had made a cup of coffee or something, but I did. I, I, <laughs> I don't, I've never been a coffee drinker just cause I never liked it. And, and so, but there are, there's still a lot of those folks that, that still will drink some coffee. Uh, I think the general thought was that as they try to drink it in accompaniment to a meal. And so not to sort of use coffee as a meal mm. as long as it might, you know, suppress an otherwise normal appetite. And so, uh, yes, it's a very different, uh, dietary regimen than, than, you know, the whole earth is on for the most part, except for a select, uh, <laughs> now, although it's, it's interesting as more and more people are trying it and, and more, more and more people are finding, uh, some very positive health, uh, benefits from doing so. Yeah, so to me, it, it this sounds like the complete polar opposite to a vegetarian diet. If anyone wanted to imagine where it is on a spectrum, because you're you are looking to eat various forms of meat, and and I know in your case you do add cheese because uh, I've seen the pictures on your on your burger patties, which we'll talk about, and um, so you'll add in some form of dairy, and and you're you're happy to get the protein from the from egg too. But that's really what, what you look to eat, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if I were to, you know, if I were to say, uh, you know, a monthly diet, I would say 95% of it would come from uh, red meat. And then the, the remaining 5% would be made up of eggs, cheese and, and seafood. So that, that, that's, that would pretty well describe it. I mean, dairy, I, I try to limit. Sometimes I'm better at it than other times. You know, I think for me, dairy tends to be a net negative overall, uh, but sometimes, you know, you just uh, you just kind of you, you fall prey at, uh, because it tastes so darn good, you know. And this is and this way of eating, you say, is what you've noticed has made you feel the best out of all your experiments so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's remarkable, you know, and I think I felt really good on a ketogenic diet. And there's a lot of people that do. And so, you know, with me, I was just trying to push to the very, very extremes of you know, performance. And, and so when I was on a ketogenic diet, you know, we'll go back to this rowing, you know, concept two, I, I pulled a one sixteen five five hundred meter, you know, row, which is, which was a world record at that time, or actually it was an American record for, for the 40 plus group. And I was 49 at the time. And then when I went on a, on this all meat diet, my performance just after about a month of sort of transition, my performance has continued to improve and my training didn't really change. And so then I took another, uh, basically two seconds off that, which, which at that pace is a you know, it's a That's lot. The fast you get, you know, those, those even tenths of a seconds get hard, but I pulled another two seconds off that and I'm likely good for even more. And I think, you know, from a performance standpoint, you know, if you compare a, a zero carb diet to a, a sort of a ketogenic diet, you know, if you look at what the major differences are, I, I think certainly you do spend, a, you know, some time or a fair bit of time in ketosis on, a, on, a, on an all meat diet. Uh, depending on your meal frequency and your act, your activity level. Uh, so I think if you want to argue ketosis is good, and I think a lot of people do, then I think that gives you that. But the other thing is I don't think – I think one of the one of the shortcomings of a ketogenic diet can be too much protein restriction. You know, I think people uh, – and there's some big controversy about that. How much is too much? Is, is, is protein bad for us? Does it knock us out of – ketosis does it cause rampant gluconeogenesis does it make us age faster and i think those questions are still very much undecided um but 
from a performance standpoint, we clearly know that protein supports performance. I mean, we've known that for literally thousands of years. You know, uh, athletes thousands of years ago knew that they, if they ate meat, they would be stronger. You know, you can look at the, you know, you can look at the historical accounts of, of you know, like the Mongols and, and all these other various war bands that, you know, that's what their diet was and they were stronger warriors. And that's, that's analogous to athletic performance. But the other thing that, you know, there are a few things that, that are um, well accepted in the, in the supplement world as being at least somewhat effective. One of those is creatine. Uh, and we know that's pretty good for performance. You know, uh, meat has that, you know, in a pretty good amount, especially when you're eating the amounts that I do, you know, I'm eating, you know, two kilos of meat a day, you know, sometimes, which is a lot, you know, and, you know, you know, people say, well, you can get in creatine, but you'd have to eat a lot of meat. So you never do this. So that's why you have to sub them. But when you, all you eat is meat, you end up eating a lot of meat. So you get all this creatine in there. There's precursors for, uh, you know, beta alanine, which has also been shown to improve, uh, performance. Uh, you know, and so I think it's, it's a good performance fuel. Um, the other thing that I noticed just personally, uh, is we talked about joint, joint issues, joint health, joint. And being an orthopedic surgeon, you're very aware of joints. Very in tune with that. Cause I know, you know, if I have a pain, I know pretty much exactly what it is, what's likely the cause of it. And then I can just kind of monitor those things. And, you know, even though I'm a surgeon, I'm not a fan of, you know, operating on everything. You know, there's some things that clearly need, need surgery, but there's a lot that we do. And unfortunately, a lot of surgeries I've done over the years, it probably had I known about this and, you know, we had patients that were willing to, you know, adequately adjust their diet. They probably could have avoided surgery. And that's something, uh, an area that's, you know, there's just not a lot of interest in just because there's no money in it. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's hard to get that, uh, uh, that, that tested. And that, that's something well, maybe we can talk about. That's something I'm trying to help, help make happen. Uh, but yeah, from a performance perspective, you know, you know, you can argue whether high carbohydrate, high carbohydrate diet is best for athleticism or performance and different sports are all going to have different requirements, as you know. Um, you can argue that a ketogenic diet has its advantage, metabolic flexibility has advantages. And, you know, and I will argue that a zero carb diet, at least, you know, from what I'm doing right now, which is, you know, 500 meter or, you know, maybe 1,000 meter, 100 meter, one minute rowing has been the best performance I've had. I've also seen that in just basic gym strength. You know, I think I do a lot of weight training as well. And so I've seen my numbers in the gym also going up. And it's been, you know, I try to calculate my wattage increase on the 500 meter. And it was about an 8% increase in wattage from, from you know, world record row at 116.5 to 114.5, which is, that's pretty significant when you're already at a world, you know, world class level, putting another 8% on there. That's, that's not, you know, and it's not, not, insign- it's not insignificant. Yeah. And especially when you're going from your forties to your fifties, you know, some people would say, oh no, you'd have to be in your twenties or thirties to get performance improvements. And you're showing, no, you can still do it, you know, as, as we grow older, which is fantastic. So, yeah, because I mean, yeah, so, I'm thinking too, you know, a lot of people, as soon as they go 40 plus, they start, they put, they put themselves in a mental state. Oh, I'm, I'm only degrading. So I've just got to accept it. But I think your story is just another one of those highlights. Like, don't just accept it. Actually, you can do something. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something, it was actually surprising to me because I got to about 45 and, and, and that's when I started seeing a, a kind of a decline in what I was capable of doing. And I was just kind of like, okay, we'll just hang on to as much as you can. And then, you know, if you, if you listen to the traditional, uh, 
sort of advice out there. It's, you know, as you get age, as you get older, you need to, you know, you need to recover more. You, you just don't have that trend. You just don't, you, you don't have the recovery capacity. You don't have the ability to train intensely like you did when you were in your twenties and thirties. And you need to space those out if you do that. And I just found that not to be true in my case. I was able to, you know, and I think diet largely had a big role in this. And I think certainly a ketogenic diet helped me with that, but even more so the zero carb or, or carnivorous diet has helped my recovery where I can just go at it day in and day out. Like I, like I was in my twenties. I don't, you know, if I look back to what I was capable of, you know, 20 years ago, I, I'm still capable of largely that with regard to training intensity, training frequency, and my recovery is actually probably better. I don't get sore very much. You know, I had this, uh, about two weeks ago, I hadn't, I hadn't done full squats in a while, you know, and, and just because I've been doing other things, a lot of jumping and deadlifting and stuff like that. But I, I just put a bunch of full squats and I did a really pretty punishing squat workout. And I was expecting, you know, to be limping around, you know, walking mm-hmm. around like an old lady for three or four days afterwards, like often happens. And it just didn't happen. I got a little bit sore, but nothing like I would have experienced before. And so I think that, you know, I think the diet plays plays a significant role in that. And I think that, you know, there's some reasons that maybe, you know, when you're not on a high carb diet, you're not experiencing as much oxidative stress because you're not, uh, you're not, you know, being quite as glycolytic. And so I think that probably tends to be easier to recover from when you're, when you're you know, using more uh, fat metabolism. And I think there's other people that have noted that too. I'm not alone in that. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, we'll get into general population, but just from an athletic point of view, still. So what I'm hearing is that when you're eating a carnivorous diet, that you're noticing it's fine for performance, still. That you don't need to find other forms of carbohydrate to to load yourself with glycogen with quick burning energy. That your diet's giving you that energy, but then also interestingly, that your your post exercise feeling is that you're feeling better. You're not, you're recovering more efficiently or efficiently too. Yeah. I think those, those are both true. You know, I think, you know, I think certainly if you were to muscle biopsy me, you would find that I have glycogen. (laughs) Yeah, no, you definitely do. But I'm just saying you don't have, you, I'm thinking a lot of athletes thinking, I've got to have some sort of glyco, you know, some carb if I need to sort of give my muscles that energy. And you're saying your, your diet is giving you that. Well, I think, you know, I, I think it's conditional. I think that if your, your sort of day-to-day diet involves eating a lot of carbohydrates, then you will adapt those, those different metabolic mach- processes to be more efficient to handle that. And so with me, because I never take in any significant carbohydrate, my body has probably gotten better at converting, you know, whether it's fat or protein into, into the carbohydrate I need, probably re- recycling lactate. Yeah. No, I'm probably very efficient at that. And so my glycogen levels are probably, uh, well, I'll tell you, they are sufficient enough for me to break 500 meter world rowing records. And so, you know, whether, whether, whether I use a little slightly higher percentage of fat to do that, I still have some glycogen. I'm still able to tap into that and I'm still able to hit that top speed. You know, I mean, one of the criticisms is with low carbohydrates, you don't have that top gear. And I mean, I've, you know, again, this is all rowing stuff and a lot of people, not a lot, of, not a lot of people understand that but i've broken the 100 meter world record i've broken the one minute world record i've broken the 500 meter world record repeatedly i've done you know uh, intervals with 100 meter sprints 25 reps at just slightly above the world record pace over and over and over again and so clearly i've got that that top level gear to where i can where i can do that and i think it's what you're chronically adapted to and so 
you know, the problem with a lot of these, these athletic studies that they do is they put people in, in a, in a study, they roll them and then they, then they switch them over to a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks, you're adapting to that stuff. You're ramping up all that metabolic machinery. And, and, and there, and during that time, they're assessing your performance. Of course, it's going to be lower. So that's one of the criticisms with this is that, you know, if you test people for four weeks and three, three out of those four weeks, they're in an adaptation phase. Sure. I mean, if you put me on a vegetarian diet for three weeks, even though it's high carb, I guarantee my performance would tank for those three weeks. You know, it's, it's just, it's just a new thing you've got to adapt to. Mm -hmm. It's like learning a new sport almost. You can't just take a bunch of rugby players and say, okay, now we're going to go row and expect them all to, 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 to adapt within three weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, I think that's a key thing people need to understand. Um, there is the, that metabolic ad adaptation um, in the ketogenic community, they would call it keto keto flu. So when they when they have that stage where they could feel terrible as their body is actually looking how it's going to burn energy more efficiently and from different sources. So and you're yeah, and as you said, it doesn't matter. It's not just the ketogenic diet. You could be going vegetarian and sort of go through. I guess we could call it like a vegetarian flu when you're getting the same sort of effects if you when you're trying to adapt. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just picking a different fuel source, and yeah. you know, it can happen overnight. You know, you've got to you've got to you've got to give it some time. And I think you know, one of the traditional when they look at ketogenic diet and they talk about being fat fat adapted, they look at something called a respiratory quotient, and that generally generally seems to to sort of shift at about three weeks. But but my sort of uh, assumption and what I've experienced is that there's other things besides respiratory respiratory quotient that uh, come into this and there's, you know, a lot of other things that are going on and, and, and it's probably stuff that we could look at that I think take longer than that. I think it takes you, you know, I've been sort of fat adapted for now three or four years. And so I think I continue to improve from a health standpoint, from a joint issue standpoint. And so all those things add up to, to athletic performance, you know, in the long term. And so I think it's more the three week uh, type of thing, even on top of that. So since we're talking adaptation, how would someone adapt, say, from a low-carb diet to a carnivorous diet? So are we talk? I guess in this case, we might, you could use examples of what's your eating pattern, like what's your day? Do you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Or um, what, what, what is it that you actually eat in a day too? So just to help with someone think, how would I adapt from that type of way of eating into your way of eating? Right. So one of the things with, well, certainly a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet is, you know, there's a, there's a uh, very conscious attempt to manipulate your macros and hit certain fat percentages and protein percentages and stuff like that. And there's a lot of people that, that also couple intermittent fasting where they're going to eat in a, you know, a six hour, four hour, eight hour window. Um, and so this type of eating or, or eating like a carnivore, you know, it doesn't really involve those things. Basically, you know, and this is sort of more philosophical, but I, I basically just eat whenever I'm hungry. I'll eat and I'll eat as much as it takes to fill me up. And I kind of get an idea over time what that takes. And so generally I'll eat about two meals a day. So generally I'll eat something either breakfast or lunchtime. Uh, one of those two meals I'll eat. And then the next meal I'll eat you know, sometime, you know, in the early evening, typically. And so typically for me, I'll have, you know, and it's somebody, it depends on my work schedule, my training schedule, how I'll, how I'll fit those in typically. But, you know, I'll have typically 
about two pounds of meat in it for, for, for a morning meal and the, and the same for an evening meal. Uh, sometimes if I'm, you know, for whatever reason I'm hungry in the middle of the day, I don't, I won't hesitate to eat a, eat a, eat a third meal in there. But, but, uh, you know, again, I think it goes back to simplicity. If we look at, uh, how sort of every other animal out there eats, you know, if we, especially if we compare it to carnivores, they just go out when they're hungry, they run around, they go kill something, they eat it. And then they lay around for, you know, whatever, a day or two or three days until they get hungry again. And then they go out and do it again. And I think that's generally how most animals do it. And I would argue that, that you know, we are too. And that uh, our appetite should work that way. So when we're hungry, it should mean we're supposed to eat. You know, we, we've got this really messed up appetite regulation through all the food that we've been eating, you know, in the last... Well, you can say the last 10,000 years, perhaps, but um, certainly recently, you know, people that they're constantly snacking. We've got a whole industry that supports that. You know, you got to eat every two hours. Your blood sugar is going to get low. We have my kids at school. They have to have two snacks a day, you know, or they can't get through the day and pay attention in class. All this stuff is really absurd, actually. Uh, you know, we but we've just sort of adopted that sort of eating strategy. And so I think that, you know, if you eat a big full meal, you know, that fills you up, likely you'll go six, eight, 10 hours again without eating. And that kind of ties into autophagy. Do you get some of that? Do you get some of the, does it produce ketones when you go longer between meals? I think your diet should generally support that, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically how I do it. Okay. So yeah. So if one, is, <clears throat> if someone wanted to start that way of eating a simple way, would just to think, of, go, go and get some minute steaks or, uh, maybe some more substantial kinds of uh, red meat if you want and cook that in the morning and have that for breakfast. And when you're hungry again, just look for some more form of meat and just eat that that protein versus trying to add in a salad with your, your steak because you don't even need to bar- bother with the salad. Well, I mean, and that's controversial. And in my experience and what I can observe and lots of other people, I've seen zero detriment from excluding you know, fruits and vegetables and, and grains and stuff from my diet. You know, one of the, again, if you go back from transition to a low carb diet, one of the big mistakes people will do is they tend to under, under eat, you know, they'll come into it and they'll think, wow, you know, a half a pound of meat is really, it's a lot of meat to eat. Mm-hmm. I can't really do that. And so, you know, I will tell you, there are very, very petite women, you know, women that are 55 kilos that are eating three pounds, four pounds of meat, every day. I mean, and you're just shocked to see that, but, but that's what they're able to do. And they, and they maintain their, their size, which is kind of impressive. You know, one of the other things that it's a big misconception with this is a lot of people come into this as, as it's a weight loss diet, or, you know, my goal is to lose weight. And I don't think it's necessarily the, the, I don't think it's necessarily set up for that. There's, there's people that do that and they gain weight. I mean, and certainly, uh, you know, you can argue that most people, based on a modern diet are sort of undernourished regardless of their body weight or how, how, how overweight or fat or thin they are that, that they, they've sort of undernourished themselves and, and they're, they're missing a lot of protein from their actual bone structure, their muscle, their organs, those things are all, you know, as we, if you examine old people and you do autopsies on these, on elderly people, almost all their organs have shrunk. Their brains have shrunk, their kidneys have shrunk, their livers shrunk, their hearts shrunk. Their muscles have shrunk. Their bones have lost protein. So all this stuff is, you know, we've got this absence of, of structural protein in the body. And so, 
if you you know if you start eating a, a deficient diet for 20 30 years it may take several years to sort of reverse that you know if you, if you look at a growing kid he doesn't turn from a, a little baby to an adult size you know in a matter of weeks they've got to eat for 20 years to do that to, to build all that structure and so if you spend 25 years eating a junkie diet and you start losing a lot of that structure it might take you several several years to build that back on and so one of the things is you know you eat a lot eat a lot of meat you're, you're, you're restoring some of that structural uh, tissue that you may have lost and so in the process of that you know your body may be saying hey I need more I need more I need more I mean, you're finally giving me what I need to eat and I need more I need more I need more so some people actually put on weight doing that mm-hmm. most people you know if you look at the you know, the social media sites that have, you know, thousands, you know, tens and tens of thousands of members in these, most of them will say they've lost weight. But there is a, a there is a significant minority of them. And it seems to be more women that will say, yeah, I've gained weight and I'm putting on weight. And some of it's even, some of it's even fatty tissue. And so it's kind of this, well, how do you, how do you resolve that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think what are the, what one of the uh, people that have done it a long time will say that, yeah, you know, you're putting on this extra weight this extra tissue and you're you're sort of rebuilding your structure and with time giving it enough time that that sort of resolves itself and that that often is the case um for me i i haven't you know i, I eat you know four thousand five thousand calories a day and my weight stays right where it is i haven't gained you know a pound either way i mean up or down i'm, I'm pretty stable at about 110 kilos you know that's just where i stay what i have noticed is my strength has gone up and so you know, as you know, from rowing, strength to rate weight ratios is very important. And so, if you, you know, I've got an Instagram account and I've got a, a lot of rowers that are following me now. Rowers are all watching this. And so, you know, for crew, you know, you want to be able to pull a low split, but if you get too big, then you slow the boat down. Mm-hmm. And so I've never been in a boat and I'd probably tip it over. So I don't, I, you know, not that much, but I do know that strength to weight ratio is a very important thing for that particular sport and a lot of other sports too. You know, there's a lot of sports where, you know, being able to move quickly uh, is good if you, you know, if you're strong and you don't weigh as much. And so it's probably not the ideal bodybuilding diet. You know, I think there's probably better bodybuilding diets, but as far as performance and strength, um, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you've, uh, we've seen just a glimpse of your muscle tone when you lifted your arm up now. But, I mean, yeah, you're, you're a big, muscly guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, I, I'm certainly not small. <laughs> and certainly, you know, a lot, of my, a lot of my athletic performance is certainly because I'm a big guy. I mean, I'm not going to say that just because I ate meat, I became a world champion. I mean, I put in the time. I've done the training. I've been doing it my whole life. I know what I'm doing. But, but – Despite that, I still think the diet has made a significant uh, impact on that. Because um, there's also the concept, well, it's a true, of um, the word sarcopenia. So as we age, that we can lose our lean muscle mass. And um, is that also something that you think the carnivorous diet helps to slow down? Uh, my suspicion is it certainly does. I mean, I, I you know, again, this is all, this is all anecdotal stuff. Mm-hmm. And stuff that I'm hoping to put to the test uh, through another venture that uh, myself and another guy are sort of developing right now. Uh, but certainly there's people that will say, I went on this carnivorous diet without it really exercising. I've, I've noticed more muscle tone. Um, certainly if you look at the way the elderly population eats, you know, if you, if you look at their diet and there's got a Ted name and you may or may not know him. Yes, Ted. Uh, yeah. He's another great one to follow on Twitter. He puts up an, an infographic. It shows you what 
the average older person eats. And it's abysmally low in protein. And a lot of them, they've lost their teeth and they can't chew, they can't chew a lot of meat. So they're taking these kind of these, these soy based protein supplements that are corn oil and, you know, a little bit of, you know, soy protein put in there. And, and they're just, they're just sarcopenic as can be. I mean, they're frail. I mean, I cannot tell you how many broken hips I've treated on little old ladies that, that just have no muscle mass at all. I mean, it's an easy surgery because there's nothing when you're making an decision, there's nothing to cut through, you know, you know, they're so thin, but, but they're emaciated. And, and it's, and I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with diet. Now, as they get older, they have problems absorbing pro, you know, absorbing different nutrients. So those things all sort of tie together. But I think the first thing is you've got to address what you're actually eating. And then, you know, if you're getting enough you know, the nutrients and you have to be able to overcome any absorption issues you have. And I think all those things, uh, you know, like we talked about, sarcopenia is more than just muscle. It's loss of muscle, but it's just, you know, I mean, sarcopenia is a loss of muscle. But again, those other things occur, loss of brain size, loss of kidney size, loss of heart muscle, you know, intestine, you know, the, 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 the absorptive surfaces of the intestine sloughs off. And so you've got all this stuff that you're just losing, losing, losing. And, and I think that, you know, diet plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so from it sounds like you would suggest that, um, yeah, as people age, they definitely should be eating more protein, and that's what the carnivorous way of eating is doing. You've you've touched a little bit on on kids. <clears throat> do you? I mean, with your own family, do you do you uh, have your children eat more protein, more meat, or how, how yeah, does it, how does it work for for parents who think of yeah, who so might eat this I, way in their kids? Yeah. So with my kids, you know, and, and I'm divorced, so I have them part time. So it's, it's tough to, you know, control everything they eat and they go to school. And so, you know, you go to school and I've got all these little parties and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I teach them, you know, they, they know how to read labels. They know that, that food impacts their health. I've tried to try to dissuade them from eating too much sugar and giving them better options for that. Um, and I, and I, I, I teach them that meat is a good thing. You know, I've created this little, story time superhero named steak man and so he comes in and goes a day, you know? but but you know they they know and they like it i mean my when i go when i cook up a steak my my social my little seven-year-old daughter i mean she's like standing behind me to pointing out which piece she wants because she knows that taste that's the best tasting pieces of pieces of meat and so they they i tend to i tend to sort of favor that in their diet i say hey let's eat some hamburger or some steak or some sausage or some chicken or some fish and get that in you first. Okay. Mm. Get a decent amount of that in you. And then if you're still hungry, yeah, we'll give you a little fruit. We'll give you a little cheese. You know, we might, I might make you a little like a ketogenic dessert, you know, try to cut the sugar out of that. Um, you know, and, and that's, and that's basically what I do with their diet and they're happy and they're, they're healthy as can be. And they're, you know, they're, they're just really good kids. They're lean, they're muscular. My little nine-year-old daughter is, is a, She's just an amazing little athlete right now. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, that, that's – with the kids, I don't say you can only – although my kid, my, my nine-year-old, she keeps asking me, can she do an all-meat diet? You know, I said, no, let's, let's wait to your little – let's wait to your little old for now. You know, but uh, – But protein – yeah, I would fully agree. I mean, even my own family, we've noticed uh, – I've got a six-year-old daughter, and the more we can get her to eat protein first, the better. Um, yeah, yeah she, she, she feels yeah, we can see her energy levels and her mood is so much better. So if she eats and quick, yeah. if she eats fast eating carbs or something, then phew, it, it can be a nightmare afterwards. So. 
Well, and then you, and then twenty, and you know, forty-five minutes later, they're hungry again anyway, mm-hmm. and so you're constantly having to feed them. And so, you know, I, like I said, I just load these kids up with protein and fat as much as I can shove in them, and then I don't have to deal with, you know, making snacks every forty-five <laughs> minutes. You know, yeah, yeah, so they're more satiated, much better. Yeah, it's the same thing for me. If I load up on two pounds of steak, I don't have to think about even think about eating for another. 10 to 12 hours. And so just from a time management standpoint, yeah. it's pretty same thing with the kids. You know, you shove all that good food in them and, and, and you know, you just tell them eat, 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 eat. And then they're like stuffed and they don't want to eat again for three or four or five hours. And that's nice. Yeah. No, we did that with sushi the other day with my daughter. And it's the, the best I've ever seen her where she's just like, no, I'm actually full. <laughs> it, it was so nice to see too. So yeah, always trying to figure out how to get more protein into her. Um, so talking about protein and, and loads, I guess some people would think, but surely if you eat that much protein that it's going to be harmful on your body because I know it's some, it's not true, but uh, you know, in the public, newspapers are promoted in the past. Oh, if you eat lots of red meat, you're more prone to bowel cancer or if you eat lots of protein, it's not good for your kidneys. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so certainly uh... – you know, they, they've actually, I think they've done a few studies on the kidney stuff and they've not shown that to be true. Um, you know, there's, there's some, uh, uh, you know, clinically, I know Jason Fung, Dr. Jason Fung is a mm-hmm. nephrologist. He's done, you know, a lot of people on these different diets and he's not seen any issues with, with certainly ketogenic diets. But, you know, protein, uh, I mean, it's never been demonstrated to harm kidneys. You know, if, if you have uh, failing kidneys already, um, you know, maybe, but I don't think that's ever really even been proven either. And there's a lot of people that actually have been known to re- reverse chronic kidney disease eating, you know, a, a, you know, a diet that's lower in carbohydrates, higher and higher in protein. So I don't think that's necessarily true. The other thing you said about the bowel cancer. So that's interesting because, uh, you know, the World Health Organization, I think last year came out and classified, mm-hmm. uh, Processed meats and red meats is, you know, I think the first was a type one carcinogen or class one carcinogen. It was a class two. And and there's a doctor named Georgia Eads, uh, who's actually a psychiatrist, and she wrote a very nice critique of that. You know, she, I think she has a website called Diagnosis Diet, and you can look at her criticism of that. It's very nice because they took 800 studies just to, that address that, and all they found, I think, and I, and I may be misquoting what she she kind of tabulated, but I think only about 19 of those things actually even showed any harm. So of those 800, 781 of them were normal and only 19 showed some harm and only, and most of those were rat studies. Uh, and they were, and they actually just showed that if you gave a rat too much red meat and, and what else they give in rat chow is this, this corn syrupy, you know, diet that they normally eat and they and they genetically breed these ones to be susceptible to cancer and then they showed that they had a marker that maybe we're not sure but maybe associated with cancer uh and, and we don't know if good or bad maybe the body produces that as a protective mechanism but we don't know the answer to that and so they concluded that because the rat showed that 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 is you know, one of the reasons, you know, we, we can call it a, a carcinogen. And so that's, that's really, uh, it's the evidence for that is really, really weak. And then even so, once they have that weak evidence compiled, they say that the, the, the relative risk is 18%. And so what they don't talk about is absolute risk. And so 
you know, if you look at the background population, they may have a 5% risk of developing bowel cancer. Now, if you eat a bunch of processed meat, it may go up to 6%. So you go from 5% to 6%, which is really meaningless, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at how the data was derived. But because 6% is 18% more than 5%. You know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna say oh, it's an 18% increase in risk of cancer. So that's you know those statistics are are very misleading and it's scare. It's you know Dr. Tim Noakes likes to say scaremongering, mm-hmm. and I think what it's about. You know, and if you look at you know there's traditional populations we can go back historically and look at the you know the the, the Maasai or the Inuit or you know any of the other uh, polar polar populations that have had these really really high meat intakes and they didn't have any high incidence of bowel cancer. Um, you know, people argue that, you know, the date on that is not that good. Uh, but, but it's, it wasn't that long ago, you know, it was 1950s and 1960s where they were still looking at that stuff where they were still eating those traditional diets. So, so I, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't take a lot of, uh, uh, I don't give a lot of credence to the, to the, to those statements. Okay. And any, any uh, would you say there's any side effects you notice when you went all meat? Um, there's well, the- I mean. I think, you know, I think from a transition standpoint, yeah, I mean, there, there were some just like going like going to any other diet, you know, for me, I, I noticed a little bit of a headache for about a week, you know, and I think that was a fluid electrolyte issue similar, similarly to like going on a ketogenic diet. And, you know, I, I basically took a little more salt, took a little more water, and that seemed to, you know, rectify that. A lot of people will say, you know, you just need to eat, eat a little more, you know, eat a little more meat and that'll, that'll help you out. Um, you know, certainly one of the big things is people are worried about, you know, there's no, there's zero I mean, there's zero fiber in this diet. And so they're like, well, you can't have a bowel movement, you mm. know? And I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I, I have healthy, healthy bowel movements. Right. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, but, but what happens is because, you know, meat is just so well absorbed. I mean, you know, but it doesn't even, there, there's not, nothing that really makes it into your colon. I mean, there's a very, very small amount compared to plant, you know, cellulose, which you fill your colon up with that stuff because you can't digest it. Meat, Meat is all absorbed in the, in, you know, it's, it's broken down in the stomach by the, by the hydrochloric acid and then it's, and then the different enzymes, uh, you know, along with small intestines. So it's highly absorbed. And so you just, you're just not making very much. You know, you're absorbing everything. It's going to the body and being used. Whereas when you're on a fairly high plant based diet, there's just so much that you can't even absorb that you're making these, you know, big bowel movements. And so there's a contrast where you say you know, some people will have a bowel movement every three or four days. And they'll be fine, and it doesn't hurt them. They don't have any pain. It's just, it's just because their their uh, output is so low, mm-hmm. and, and they misconstrue that. And say, oh no, you're constipated because you didn't have a bowel movement three times a day, and you know that there's just it's it's just sort of a misnomer. It's just a it was it's a misnomer. It's not really constipation. Uh, constipation was when you're really straining. It's painful, and 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 you can't get rid of what you have inside of you and that's not what happens on a, on a zero card diet for for the vast majority of people okay. um you know i'm trying to think what well, you know low energy you know again transitioning to a new a new fuel source if you're coming from a standard diet you know you might your energy levels might be down you might be tired you might be a little uh you know lethargic your appetite might be low a lot of people will notice a pretty profound appetite suppression whether it be on a all meat diet or a ketogenic diet um, I'm, I'm, inter- to- I'm also interested because um, you, when you were talking about benefits earlier, uh, you mentioned joints. But so, would you say that your joints feel better? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they clearly felt better to me on a ketogenic diet 
uh, when I drop, you know, and I think there are, uh, I don't necessarily, I don't think it's a carbon carbohydrate ratio. I just think there's certain foods, whether it be glutens or, you know, lectins or, you know, oxalates or salicylates or any of these things that are typically found in, in different plant products, uh, or, or could be, you know, it could be the sugar, uh, the, the fructose, uh, or, or just if you're eating plain sucrose, which is obviously derived from plants, those things I think have a negative impact, impact on, jo- on joints. You know, to what degree and to how much and to which people, I don't know. But certainly when you eliminate all of that stuff, which, which is what you do on a zero-carb diet or a carnivorous diet, I mean, I think your joints feel as good as they can. At least that's been my experience. And I've got, you know, just, just kind of lurking on social media, I just see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that say, all oh, my, my arthritis went away, all this pain went away, and it goes away oftentimes without weight loss, which I think is pretty telling. Mm. You know, you can, there's an inflammatory component to this. And, you know, you know, and if it goes away before you lose weight, then, then there's certainly, that's pretty, uh, strong evidence to support that. You know, a lot of people say, well, the only reason you joint pain went away is because you lost 20 pounds. Well, there's people that, that it goes away, they don't lose any weight yet or even gain weight. And they say their joints feel better. So I think it's something in the diet, uh, whether it's the omega-6 oils, whether it's sugar, whether it's some sort of plant chemical uh, that affects the joints. Uh, you know, I don't know which ones or, mm-hmm. or for how severe they are, who they affect the most. But for me, you know, looking just at my own my own personal experience, getting rid of all that other stuff has allowed me to have the most healthy feeling and performing joints that I've had in, in decades. And you mentioned um, having chats with patients of your own. Have you had any uh, case studies where you've you've mentioned, well, patients know what you eat and they've tried it themselves and they've they've seen a, a turnaround? Yeah, I've had, I've had, you know, quite a few, you know, this was a few years back when I was still doing the ketogenic stuff uh, that, uh, you know, we know that, uh, say, joint replacement patients, they tend to fare a little bit worse if they're if they're too heavy. And so we try to get them to lose weight. And there's no real good methods to do that. You can send them to a bariatric surgeon where they'll, you know, remove part of their digestive tract, you know, whatever they want to you know, bypass it or cut out part of their stomach or band it. Or you can send them to a dietitian who typically will put them on a, you know, a basically a USDA or ADA or, you know, the British Dietetic Association diet, mm. you know, which is the, you know, the, the whole grains, fruits and vegetable type of thing. And they typically won't lose weight. And so I, you know, I, I just, I just, when I, when I discovered myself, I just started putting people on these low carb diets or ketogenic diets. And, and absolutely, yeah, I mean, they, I had pretty good success with that. Um, and I had even a couple patients that, you know, they felt so good with their joints, we just canceled surgery, which was, I was happy for that. You know, the hospital wasn't particularly happy because their, their, their revenue comes from, from, you know, us doing procedures. The time, yeah. And so that they, they don't, they don't have a very big margin on, on their profit margin pretty low. And so they, they depend on a busy operating room. And mm-hmm. so once I started sort of doing that, they, they uh, weren't happy about that. And we had some, I had some discussions that I actually ended up leaving my employer, partly due to those reasons, there's some personal things also. But uh, one of the things was they didn't like me uh, practicing lifestyle medicine. Uh, they wanted me just to just to turn the operating room over and over and over and, and and sort of generate their revenue. And so that's one of the it's one of the problems with the way medicine is done right now. We're set up. The whole thing is set up to work based on how many procedures 
you know, you can do this. This is how hospitals survive. They don't survive unless there's a lot of procedures being done by the cardiologists, by the surgeons, especially orthopedic surgeons. We're big volume operators. And so we, we support a lot of hospitals. And so once you start kind of going away from that, the hospital system has to, you know, they, they can't afford their psychiatric unit. They can't afford, you know, uh, some of the other pediatrics. They can't afford some of the specialties that don't tend to make the money. And so we've got this system where, you know, that's what it's about. And so if you want to get healthy and do some lifestyle stuff, you know, you just can't do it there. And so one of the reasons I'm kind of transitioning away from that is because I, I really want to see if I can make a bigger impact um, broadly to the population uh, with, with more lifestyle related stuff and, and less, um, and less, uh, you know, one to one. Interventions, correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think if people understood how the economics of a hospital have to work, you know, they, I remember I, I'm from South Africa and the, there was a private hospital near me and I learned from the orthopedic surgeons there that um, theaters are booked per minute, you know, so there's a rate per minute that they, they can charge out at to the health insurance companies. So yeah, exactly. They need to, you know, they want to rather fill out their, their billable minutes per day versus having empty, empty theaters. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, and I was, I was very good at this, but I mean, you know, if, if your if your OR day has a hole in it and it happens to operate, they'll just take it away from you because you're not filling up every single second in the operating room of the mm. patients. There's a big push to, you know, be efficient and get people in, get them out, do the next case, do the next case, do the next case and, and keep that hospital running. And so it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of a secret. I mean, but it's, it's certainly, uh, um, you know, the way things are. Yes. Yeah, the uh, economics It's billable time and they've got to fill it up with as much as possible. Um, have you had any patients who have been willing to, cause they have to have a procedure. I'm just thinking, and, uh, they go on a carnivorous way of eating for four weeks before a procedure and sort of any, any changes. I don't know if you've had any case studies who've been willing to do that. Yeah, no, I haven't. So right now the way I'm practicing is something called locums tendon. So I'm, I'm just basically kind of a traveling guy. Okay. So I'm not do research that way. So a lot of the stuff uh, that just works out better for my, my family situation right now is so I can spend time with my kids. And it's, it's also just because I kind of got tired of that, that other sort of rat race uh, program. So I haven't really done that. I've had some people that have talked to me that, that, uh, you know, have had injuries that they're rehabbing from surgery. And I've asked them to do that. And they've seen to notice uh, reduced healing times, uh, better healing, less inflammation during the healing process. And so those things are, uh, you know, again, they're still anecdotal. I haven't written up anything. Uh, you know, we've, we've got this sort of website going now. Well, we're starting it. N equals many.com. We're trying to bring this anecdotal stuff uh, and trying to, trying to sort of consolidate some of that and standardize some of that and seeing what diet, how diet really impacts these things. You know, one of the things we're doing now is we're just trying to get this carnivore study. I'm getting these people, I'm getting a lot of people signed up for this and we're going to do a 90 day, uh, you know, pure meat and water diet. And then we're going to, we're going to assess a whole bunch of things during that time period. You know, we're going to, we're going to have them check, you know, bowel frequency and, you know, log their food and, and, and conduct all these surveys during the study. And then we'll, we, we likely, depending on how much fun, funding we have, we'll do some labs at the end of that. But once we've, we've kind of established that you can do that and that people can go 90 days on a meat and water diet and not die, which, you know, <laughs> I have, they can, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't even think it. 
So, you know, once we've kind of established it, then we can start talking about doing interventions. And so one of the things, you know, you could look at is say, you know, anecdotally, I saw people that would have peripheral neuropathy like carpal tunnel syndrome, and it would get better or go away by going on a ketogenic diet. And so you you could get... You know, through social media, you could find a couple hundred people with carpal tunnel syndrome. You don't have to confirm that's the actual diagnosis and then put them all on a ketogenic diet or a carnivorous diet or a low carb diet, whatever you wanted to do and just see what happens, mm-hmm. you know, because we're not going to get a drug company that's going to fund that study. You know, we're not going to get a, you know, a surgical group on that study because they're, you know, they want to do carpal tunnel releases, you know, and so, you know, because that's what pays the bills. But if if you do that through social media, and this is n equals many dot com, is a place where I where I'm hoping we can kind of start doing those things. And so once we get four or five hundred thousand people that all say, hey, and ninety percent of them say, hey, my carpal tunnel went away when I went on a ketogenic diet, then you've got some pretty compelling and some pretty powerful data that tends not to be biased by industry, by drug manufacturers, by food manufacturers, for you know equipment manufacturers. And so we've just got people trying to figure it out using stuff yeah. that doesn't make a profit for anybody. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, it's citizen scientist where we just share data and you, you get a bit a better picture because in research studies, I, I shared one on Twitter recently where there was a, I think it was a, uh, an ethicist in the Journal of Anesthetics that showed 5,000 RCTs. They frauded the, the data. I mean, that's incredible to think you we rely on these references and guys are, f- are fudging the stats just so that it helps them you know it's uh it is sad that that's where things go but i love the ability that like exactly what you're doing where we can just share data and suddenly that's how people can learn and change their lives too you know they don't have to wait 20 30 years for a study to finally be released before they can take any action they could even start taking action today which is what this show is all about too is to be able to get ahead of the curve and start learning how you can start helping your health Right. I think one of the, you know, one of the, you know, Tim Noakes talks about the wisdom of the crowds. And I think that's the, the, the true beauty in this is you can, you know, if it's done right and the exposure is right, you can get big, big, big numbers. You can get tens of thousands of people to participate in some of these things that are, that are not that hard to do and they don't require any drug manufacturers or any kind of, you know, uh, difficult things you can get the research tools in their hands some of them are very easy to, to, to employ and just put that out there and then just keep the data open you know, you know a lot of the a lot of these research studies they hide all their data you know they get they give you their interpretations but they won't let you see the raw data and i think you know having that raw data out there and then people can look at see what actually happened and, and and make their own conclusions because you know you can you know you can statistically analyze and group people by quartiles depending on how you like the, the results to turn out. I mean, there's so many ways to manipulate that stuff, you know, and that's what we often see. And most people just see the abstract. And I mean, it's just you know, it's just really hard to uh, to make make a good conclusion on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a science in just being able to interpret uh, research papers. I mean, I can think of someone like Zoe Harkham. I don't know if you know about her, but yeah, she's very good at uh, dissecting the words and you know the relationships and things in a paper. So you exactly as you said, you read the abstract and think, oh no, that must be the result. And if you actually look at the data, you go, mm, no, that's not particularly true that they said in that abstract. So the the copy, the content of the abstract is is not you. You should, in essence, be able to analyze the research, uh, the content that's been shared. So, but yeah, citizens, it takes PhDs to do that stuff sometimes. So. 
No, it does. I mean, it's. I mean, I read literature, and then I, if, if I'm not very familiar with the topic at hand, I mean, it's tough to, you know, to to have the background to know what what everything that it goes into that. And yeah. So, yeah. But I think there, I think there are some really easy ways to do it. You know, one of the things I like about this carnivorous diet is because we've got so much dietary confounders in nutritional research. You know, you know, you can look at all these epidemiologic studies where they'll say, you know, meat eaters have a higher rate of whatever disease, you know, or they have a shorter lifespan. And then they define what a meat eater is. And, and it's not what I do. It's someone who goes to McDonald's and eats the French fries and the, and the you know, and the shakes and the, and the, and the Cokes. And those aren't separated out from someone like me. And, and so um, I think by doing a pure carnivorous study, you can sort of sort of get away from that stuff. And that's why one of the one of the sort of the beauties of that is just like, OK, what happens when you only eat meat? Do you get diabetes? Which which the, you know, the, the vegan doctors will tell you yeah, it causes diabetes, obviously. Well, I'm like, well, I, I, I don't I don't have diabetes. I've been eating more meat than anybody you know, for a year now. And, you know, if anything, I'm, I'm as healthy as can be. And so, you know, th- those types of sort of type of statements, I think, are easily disprovable by stuff like this. And I'm going to share a picture in the episode page. Uh, this because when you tweeted out an image of when you went to a fast food joint and you ordered, I can't remember how many patties, burger patties, um, yeah. it, it sort of shows that you can eat this diet on the go. Um, you just didn't, you just ordered the meat, the burgers, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've done that. Yeah, part of it was kind of research. You know, I, I wanted, I want to find out what's available to people and how much it costs because, you know, if I, you know, I, you know, I certainly, if this is an option for people, and I think it is, you know, it has to be affordable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can't, you know, there's, and, and there's a lot of people that sort of debate this subject and, and for good reason. I mean, you know, they talk about, you know, you should only eat grass fed organic burgers or, or, you know, steaks sourced from the most reputable local sources. And, and I mean, that's, that's just not doable for most people. You know, it's just, at least in the U S I mean, in the UK, you I think your, your, your meat is all grass fed. If, I'm, if my understanding is correct, but in the U S it's not. And so you have to figure out one, what is the difference in nutrition? Is it, is it significantly more harmful not to, to, to eat the sort of the standard stuff? And then what does it cost? And, you know, having looked at this stuff pretty extensively, I think grass fed beef is, is, is clearly superior nutritionally, uh, but the difference is not huge. It's it's relatively small when you compare that to the rest of the standard diet. So if you if you if you had to say I can only afford eating the cheap mints or ground beef as we call it here, that is better than than going and eat, eating all the processed you know the, the the packaged food on the shelves. It's still a huge huge improvement. Now if you can't afford the the top end stuff then 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 sure that makes maybe that might be a little bit more nutritious but i don't think it's going to make a huge difference and it probably doesn't justify the the, the you know almost doubling in the price at least here in the u.s it's, it's almost twice as expensive for for a lot of people and it's just not doable so that's yes I, I mean i go into the restaurants and i'll order you know 10 patties 12 patties 20 patties depending on the size and you know you know they, they definitely look at me like you know, I heard that before, and, and, and but, but again, that just goes to show you what people are, or, order when they go to these restaurants. It's give me two of the two of the hamburgers, a side of fries, and a side of cokes. That's their standard order. When I do that, I usually get two or three people at the counter trying to figure out what button do I hit. You know, calculating yeah. it, 
but they never do that. And, and But that just goes to show my point that a meat eater is not someone who eats meat. A meat eater is someone who eats meat plus all this other junk. And that's where epidemiology comes from. And that's where the, the problem with that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to bring up that point where um, you were saying how um, – they're adding in all the other stuff in these studies, whereas you could still eat at a at a fast food joint if you're on the go, but more efficiently. So, um, so we're coming up for time here, Sean. Uh, hopefully, I think we've touched a lot of the the points to educate people about a carnivorous way of eating and that it, it's it's an option. Um, are there any other points that you feel we haven't touched on that you would you would definitely like people to know, or have we gone through most of the points? Do you think? Well, I think, you know, I mean, again, a lot of people will, will give me a, a hard time about because I'm, I'm just not eating these vegetables and these green vegetables and they're absolutely essential. You have to have these essential phytonutrients and, you know, I just don't think the evidence there that, that supports that. You know, a lot of a lot of this phytonutrient stuff comes from the fact that, you know, you may have some, we'll say we have some tribe in South America that, that looks, by all accounts, looks pretty healthy and they notice that they eat some particular berry. Right. I'm, this is all hypothetical. They'll find mm-hmm. this berry. We'll call it bear, magic berry X. And so they'll analyze magic berry X and they'll find out what, what chemicals are in it. And they may find that there's a hundred chemicals, but it's pretty high in one particular chemical. And so they'll take that chemical and they'll test it in some cell cultures or maybe in an animal. And they'll notice a positive effect. And there are so many biochemical processes going on in the body. There's in every cell, every second, there's literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these little chemical processes going on. And so they may find one that's affected in a positive fashion and say, aha, that's why these people are healthy because chemical X from berry Y causes this one particular biochemical process to work well. So therefore those berries are healthy and therefore you should eat some more. And therefore we're going to make a plant extract from that and we'll call it a phytonutrient and, and humans need to eat it to live long. So what they don't say is, well, what else was in what else was in their diet? What's not in their diet? What else is in that berry that other chemicals that may be good or bad? What else does that particular chem- chemical do to all these other chemical processes that you didn't check? And so we've got this whole sort of faith, sort of a house of cards faith built built on these these little tiny tiny bits of information. And so, you know, this whole thing about I have to have phytonutrients based on this type of data is to me. I mean, it's hard to accept, especially when I can go for almost a year now without any of them and be in the best health of my life. And so I think you just have to make those big sort of questions and say, okay, if that's true, this shouldn't happen. What I'm doing shouldn't happen. I shouldn't be breaking world records. I should be getting sicker and sicker. I should be having these nutrient deficiencies by now. I should have had scurry. My teeth should have all fallen out. You know, it's just, you know, what what you see doesn't match what you think you know. And that means either you know, I'm a mirage and I don't exist, or you have to recognize that I exist in thousands of others that are like me and say, okay, maybe we don't know it all. And maybe we need to rethink the way we, we answer these questions. And so I think that's, that's a, kind of the big point I try to get across because people are saying, well, science says this, this, and this, and you shouldn't be healthy and you're going to get a disease and you're going to die of cancer, or you're going to have a heart attack in five years. And I'm saying that doesn't appear to be happening. And there's people who have been doing this for 20 years or more, and that also doesn't appear to be happening. And so we have to say, why is that? So let's re-examine what we know, and let's do science a little differently. And that's, like I said, that's what I hope we can we can kind of get away from this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely know for sure I'm um, 
it's my supper time and I purposely went and bought a lot of meat so that I'm going to fill up tonight. <laughs> uh, so I think that an actionable takeaway, any listeners to the, the episode today would be, don't be afraid to eat more meat. Um, go experiment, go try eat more meat and just see how it makes you feel. You'll probably feel more satiated, less hungry, and who knows what else could be changing to your health when you start following that spectrum. So, um, Sean, what's the best way for anyone to keep up to date with your thinking, follow your thoughts, um, any any resources that you'd like to share? Yeah, so certainly, you know, the Twitter feed, I'm fairly active on that. It's S Baker MD. I've got an Instagram account where I where I kind of I can put a little bit more information. A lot of it has to do with athletic stuff. And that's uh, Sean Baker, 1967. And then uh, we were also starting this website called n equals many.com that's still under construction so if you go to there you're just going to get a we're still building a page thing but there's an email that's, that's attached to that it's called n equals many at gmail.com and and i'm getting people that are you know signing up for this carnivore today but one of the other things we're hoping to start looking at is people that have ideas like 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 i talked about hey maybe carpal tunnel syndrome can be treated with a ketogenic diet and start put feeding those ideas. And then, and then what we can do is start opening them up to the crowds and seeing if we can get people that want to, you know, de develop protocols and, um, you know, recruit people to do it. And then let's see if we can get some funding for it and do can crowdsource some funding and, and get these studies going. And then we can start answering these questions. I, I like to call that, you know, knowledge for the people by the people, you know, so we can kind of hopefully remove all this bias and, conflict of interest from this stuff and it's just it's for me and you and all the people out there and let's do our own stuff and figure it out ourselves because there's people that really don't have our, our best interests in mind quite honestly unfortunately well again for anyone listening uh, or watching this video on youtube um, when you go to the episode page which i'm going to link to it's got all the links in there for you so sean uh, again thank you so much for all the knowledge bombs you dropped today um very enlightening uh educated myself more about the, your way of eating and i'm sure any, anyone else listening to this perfect gary all right thanks enjoy your enjoy your big steak dinner <laughs> thank you I'm, I'm looking forward to it